0: I'm going to disturb our silence. Uh, Tonight, I want to talk about right effort and wise effort. And it sort of (coughs) dovetails on Guy's talk last night, I think. There'll be a little overlap, but I think it's worth overlapping at a few points. And it's interesting just to look at the way I'm using right and wise because all of us think we're making right effort. We're acting in accordance to the laws of our life, aren't we? The strategies of our schooling, of our desires. And it's an interesting paradox in Buddhism is when we think we're the most right, we're often the most wrong. Isn't that interesting? It like pulls the rug out from under us. Just as an example, uh, uh, last night Guy was talking about <clears throat> you know, the knee-jerk response of ourselves to move away from pain and towards pleasure. <clears throat> but if there's an axiom of Buddhism that I would suggest it would be moved towards the difficult, Not away from it. But that's not a natural response. Our natural response is move away from the difficult. And to tuck ourselves in in some kind of comfortable bath within comfort. And so that theme can play out in the course of our meditation. And we think we're making right effort, but it's not wise effort. So I want to take us back. To the intentionality that I mentioned on the opening night, because I want to start this thing, I can't uh, very well talk anymore about one facet of Buddhism, because it all comes in. It has. It's a. It's a. Uh, it's a multifaceted. Uh, single. Fa- it's a single. What is it? It's a like a hologram that has many different. Perspectives, but holds a single image. Is that fair? <laughs> and um, so, I want to just just bring us along just a little bit into this, so that we can understand what wise effort is. <clears throat> so, we have to understand what our, how we're inclining our minds. How what is our intentionality for our practice? And that's a paramount consideration because. Whether we make wise or right effort will depend upon how we're inclined, what we're inclined towards. Now, this is not a judgment, although you may read it as such. It certainly is not. Whether you make wise effort or right effort is up to you. And if you're going to do um, stress reduction, if you're going to modify character, if you're going to do some cultivation, you will be making right effort. But it's not the direction towards freedom. Okay? So that's what I call wise effort, is the effort directed towards freedom. Now that I have your attention... (laughs) You see, let me let me. Uh, I will quote quote the Buddha, because I'm kind of standing out here alone, making such a statement. Now, what I call um, the direction of freedom is under the term that best sanctifies that term to me is anatta, selflessness, emptiness, and the term that best sanctifies right effort but not wise effort is the the sense of I, where I is the leadership of our practice. I is in leadership of our practice. Okay? And the Buddha says, he talks about that leadership of I as being unwise view. He says the Buddha spoke about the pain of unwise view in the following passage. Monks, for a person of unwise view in which the I is the leadership of our practice, he's, this is my words, <laughs> of a person of unwise view, whatever bodily, verbal, or mental conduct he or she undertakes in accordance with that view, and whatever volitional aspiration, wish, and volitional formations, which means effort, are engendered, in accordance with that view, all will lead to undesirable, unwanted, and disagreeable harm and suffering to yourself and others. Period. Because the view's wrong. Now you can do a lot with right view. You can do a lot with right effort. Right meaning under the leadership of I, following your natural inclinations of self towards accumulating and controlling and discovering and overcoming and producing, because the sense of self thrives within that environment. There's no project that the sense of self likes better than to find its and understand its own demise. It would take that project on before it will take any, because it both feeds itself through its own observation. It's like hiring a criminal to lead your police force, right? The leadership's wrong here, and the crimes keep happening. The sense of self operates in accordance to its own laws. And those are the laws of contraction, distance, disconnection, the laws of trying to get over using time in the future to overcome the difficulties of the present, to be held within the confines of one's own thoughts. And if we look at our sitting, mostly we do just that. We think our way through the time on the mat, don't we? And we kind of go drifting with the thoughts. And when something dawns on us that needs some recognition, we meet that experience with a lot of thinking and plotting and strategizing on how to get around it or through it until the bell will ring <laughs> and we think we're effortfully working in accordance with the deepest teachings of the Buddha. But he only taught one thing. He taught the end, suffering and its end. And if you understand the formation of the leadership of I, the formation of the sense of I, the sense of self, you would understand how pain, we would understand how pain manifests. Because the self manifests through the contracted spirit, the tightening down, the defensive resistance to something, as Guy mentioned last night, which we recognize as a thought or an expectation or an anticipation of a future recovery from the misery I'm now in. And that sense of self is that contracted feeling. That's the suffering. That's the suffering. And so we make efforts. This is the criminal in charge of the police, We make efforts to surmount that contraction. But the efforts to surmount the contraction is more contraction to what it is that we're perceiving. We think we're doing it right because that's how we've always worked this thing. We've always tried to overcome through a genuine, disciplined effort whatever obstacles we face. We've always done that and it's worked successfully in school and perhaps gotten us degrees or acclaim. But that's where it breaks down in this tradition, in any tradition, in any genuine spiritual tradition. in. One passage in the Sutta Napata, the Buddha says, all effort is suffering. He meant all right effort in the way I'm using it. All willful effort. So well, how can we take this right effort that we all feel and the only effort we know and invert it so that it actually is in accordance with the teaching because that's what for if you have that inclination of mind meaning if your intentionality is to take this thing as far as it will go not stopping or treading water in the multiple ways that we can do that throughout the history of our spiritual journey, then it must be in accordance with this simple teaching of emptiness. Everything we do, and I used to wait until people have matured sufficiently to bring this talk up, but I believe now that it needs to be talked on day one, the first retreat. And we may have any idea what this emptiness is. We may not feel any significant change and very full of and And it doesn't matter. If you work in accordance with the principles of anatta, you will see it. If you work in discordant, discordance with those principles, you won't. Do we want to see it or not? That's the question. Is our inclination, is our intention to open up to this level of the teaching? Or is it to stay safe, and this again is not pejorative, is it to stay safe within the leadership of I, safely resting upon The many ways that this will build our image, our reputation, our knowledge, our sense of well-being, our sense of tranquility, steadiness of mind. There are multiple ways that this can be honored as character development. Now, just to recover character development, the Buddha spoke a lot about character development, but does it have to be a sidebar to ending suffering? Or does it happen in relationship to this deepest principle of the teaching? And I say it does. It's not something that you need to focus on outside of ending suffering. It happens on its own. Because right effort, willful effort, effort under the leadership of I will not take us where we are wanting to go if our inclination, if our intention is towards the truth of where the Buddha is pointing. And it won't show us what we need to do to get there. We have to take the ways that we have been working in this world, the way energetically our willful, effort, and invert that energy so that it moves towards the recognition and discovery and realization of what is here, not towards the manipulation, distortion of what is here. Most of us start the meditation feeling very awkward about ourselves. We don't feel there's anything holy in us. Let's just move on and get something holy that I can be proud of in myself. Wait for a reasonable state of mind that feels otherworldly, and then I will corral around that and try to nurture it, milk it really. (laughs) My spiritual worth out of that. But everything else is kind of lame, ordinary, routine, just me. And the teaching goes into the middle of that. Just me. It doesn't skirt any of that. The mundane, the ordinary. It goes right into the middle of that. And we realize it. We perceive it differently. We perceive it. We see it as the sacred once we have seen it in its correct orientation. And the sense of I, the leadership of I, builds upon its own efforts through its future expectation. Its its scaffolding is secure as it marches forward on the journey, the noble journey of ending suffering. The noble journey of ending suffering cannot be future. It's now, literally, now or never. We really work ourselves very hard in this tradition and wring our hands. For what? It's the point. What I call wise effort is establishing ourselves in the middle of that without blinking. And to invert the energy to look futuristically towards expectation of the results, we have to invert that energy. And it's towards what I call the four R's of wise effort. The four R's break open, break apart the scaffolding of the leadership of I, the scaffolding of the sense of self, that which holds the self together. And again, even if we don't recognize that that's what we ultimately want, but we feel the yearning of our heart pulling us into some sense of completion, then we have to have enough trust early on, even before insight, to work in cooperation with this teaching not against it, in alignment with it. And then it starts unfolding much quicker than what I did, which was to work against it until I broke myself apart. And then disabled, I came back into the field. What are the four R's of effort? And this is where there's some overlap with guys talk. But again, I say it differently. Not better, just differently. And for each of you to listen from the different perception because I believe that we can get stuck in believing the truth from a certain perspective that we have of Dharma. And when you listen to different voices, it breaks that icy freeze that we have in relationship to one perspective that allows us the flowing movement of different perspectives so then we gain access to a, a more complete sense of what is being said so the first r well, let me just go through the r's it's relax release relinquish and rejoin and the first r is very known much known to us and it's where the overlap is is that is a sense of relaxation, but you see, relaxation—we have a misperception of what that. Is. To us, it means like getting into the sauna, right, <laughs> or a warm bath, and just like. Ugh. But so, indulgence is the near enemy of relaxation, you might say. But that's not what we're talking about. Here. We're talking about psychic relaxation where there is a surrendering to the need to be defensive, right? When you're defensive, you're you're tight, tense, anxious, on guard. And the willingness to surrender that defensiveness is what I call relaxation, psychic relaxation. And it also encompasses physical relaxation, but it goes much deeper than just a good massage, And what happens, interestingly, is that when we relax, we see the edges of our resistance. We're willing, because relaxation takes us through the areas, the boundaries of our defenses, we have to admit, if we're willing to go towards the difficult, we have to be willing to look at those areas in which we refuse to surrender, in which we refuse to relax because we hold a particular perspective of harm that's on the other side of that boundary. For instance with some mind states that might be going through us as we sit. Some of us, when a mind state of grief for some of us, or fear or anger, depending upon our history with it, depending upon our perception of what is manifesting in the history we've had with that particular thing, there can be a strong sense of self-protection from and a secondary response of fear towards what it is that's arising, the experience that's arising. And I'm not going to simplify it because it can't be. We have to experience those states of mind sufficiently until we prove them to be harmless. That's what has to happen. We have to be exposed repeatedly to the whole array of mind, which is what's happening this week, until everything in the mind is seen and perceived as harmless, until we can essentially relax completely with ourself. And as we relax deeper and deeper, we lose the sense of self-definition. That's, we become more spacious. We become less defined, more amorphous, you might say. But it's not, Like who am I? What am I doing? It's not like a psychotic not knowing. Because stillness accompanies it. You see? When we hold that level of stillness, watch the sense of self become more vague. We don't need it. Something else comes forward much, much more infinite and wondrous than the contracted sense of me. And so relaxation, we relax our way to freedom. Isn't it beautiful? Isn't it absolutely there's a, a law of parsimony in science is something is so beautifully apparent, it's so architecturally manifest beauty that it has to be true. And the Buddhist teaching is like that. You know it's true even if you don't know it in your gut, which most of us already do, just by its sheer simplicity, by its absolute elegance. And so we, and all the hard work, the striving to, has actually worked counter to the need to just. Relax. And stop resisting. You also know something, you'll begin to see that the deeper that sense of relaxation, the quieter we become, the more spacious the attention and the awareness, and the more subtle the observation, and you'll then pick up areas of disquiet, unease, at more and more subtle levels not through striving, not through long-enduring breath meditations for months on end, but from your interests to discover where the residues of your suffering maintain themselves. Once we're on to the fact that we create our own suffering, we're like a bloodhound on the path, the interest becomes and the joy of that discovery becomes so compelling. We don't need endless months of refined samadhi work. And at each stage, there's a sense of safe and harmlessness, a deep sense of safety, And what counters that for most of us is that we don't trust. We've had history of mistrusting relationships. And that keeps us on edge of ourselves. Keeps us from a deeper sense of relaxation. So we have to do psychological work often in accompaniment of this spiritual work, but we do it from the spiritual perspective. You see, once you, once we get a sense of how to work this thing, it becomes very easy. And impersonal, light, feathery. We're willing to go anywhere because it's there's no self implication here. I had a fifteen year old. I teach um, teens. So a 15-year-old, I was teaching relaxation and what it meant. And so she goes home and comes back the next week and says, I have something to report. I said, okay, what? She says, I was in the middle of our family, and I think she had a brother and another sister or something, parents. And there started to be the ratcheting up of yelling and disquiet in the house. And I could see my role in that and how I would, add to it. And I remembered the instructions this week, which was just to relax. And in the middle of my rising, I said, I don't have to do this. And she sat back down. She just released the tension. And the whole family system imploded on itself and couldn't rise up. (laughs) And she didn't know that before. She didn't know she had that ability. She thought her role in life was just to March forward with the rest of the anxious people in her family. How safe is your mind? How safe is it? Are you willing to look? You don't have to do anything but look. Awareness will prove its harmlessness. Just look, just be willing to look. How much energy does that take? It take the energy comes in the avoidance, not in the observation. Relax, release. Now this is an interesting one. We release the need to control the outcome. That's huge because if you want to really attack or get a sense of the sense of self, if you want to take it head on, watch those areas in which you cannot control, like when you lose your car keys or something's out of place. Watch what happens, the eruption within consciousness of a moment of chaos and a moment of chaos in which we are completely out of control and then you will see how the momentum the momentum the historical current momentum of this sense of self because in that moment of chaos there's complete vulnerability and there's no nothing there's no rightness to the universe What will protect me if it's not my control. We have no faith, you see. We have very little faith. Our faith, no, we have a lot of faith. It's just in us. So we keep the same amount of faith, we just move it. So if I, I don't, one of is very. I, I, f- I find these, like when we worry, we feel like we need to worry, or the outcome won't be in line with what I want to happen. So the worry, that tension, keeps us believing that the outcome depends upon me fretting over the outcome, and then we combine that with a sense of caring. I only care. I only can show that I care when I worry about something. I'm worried about you. Well, you must care about me. This is absolute insanity. Again, the sense of trust. And what you'll do is you'll bottom out on your need to control. Just I'm not don't ask you to give it up. You're not going to be able to. Just watch how it fails you. You cannot order the universe. You the first thing you'll do is blame your sense of unworthiness. You'll think I'm just not other people can, I can't. The CEOs of the world can do it. I can't. So then there's a sense of self-failure. But if you just shake yourself a little bit and scratch the surface of the CEOs—they're screaming inside too. Nobody can, and we bottom out. You see, we do it after the fact. The room's cold; it's already cold. I will turn up the temperature. Great—it's already cold. You're not changing the now. You're going to change the the then. But you're doing nothing to now. But we hold on what we're going to do. I'm going to. I'm changing the temperature. <laughs> I have a beautiful example of being out of control, but also the wisdom of of, of dear friend, student of mine, who has four children, and she. Of various ages, and she was driving down the intersect the uh, uh, interstates uh, uh, of Seattle and as usual, it was locked in traffic, and she was late for school and she had a meeting, and her kids were late for school, and they were all horsing around the back seat, yelling and screaming and She was just in tears practically, and she was just about ready to admit defeat. When she said, I will never be outside of this car. <laughs> now listen to that. Don't laugh at it. Listen to it. I will never, never I will, never, I will not have a life outside of this car. You see, when you really say that, then you deal with the life that's in the car. And you square yourself with it. But as long as you believe there's a life outside the car, as soon as I let the kids out, then you'll live with that expectation and the anxiety and the distraught until you get there. But when you know you will never be a life outside of this car, so you have no other frame of reference, then it's completely workable. Fit the equation of our own suffering into that. Whatever our suffering in fits into that equation. Not through your will, but through your surrender. Not through your will, but through your release. That's where the effort goes. I cannot change this but we have to actually see that we cannot change it. We have to be pushed, bottomed out. This cannot be changed. As long as we believe in our will and our need to control, we will never surrender. Why would we? We think we have the upper hand. Because reality is what is left when we drop alternatives. Relax, release, relinquish. Relinquish is seeing what is false, what is untrue, and letting it go. Releasing, relinquishing what is untrue. The world of your thinking. The world of your story. The world of your emotional life. All the things that it says about. You see, when you get to the point of being willing to go wherever this thing takes us, it will take us through everything. What is deeply meaningful to me? Created as a scaffolding of me. What holds me together. My image. To know what is authentic. To know what is real. In Buddhism we do it by various means. Impermanence, as one of us mentioned. Things that are changed cannot be real. What's real cannot change. What's left? We do it through the despair of seeing that the appearances of life cannot be counted on, cannot be relied upon. There are various ways that we can begin to perceive and understand the unreality of our, where we depend upon the unreality of life and relinquish that. But it will take us through our thought Nothing that we perceive, nothing that we think, nothing that we feel is ultimately true. And at some point, if we are inclined in that direction again, we will have to relinquish all of that. driven by a question. What is left when the unreal is abandoned? What is left? Because that, when people are dying, it's, I have a woman now who I do tell from context, i never given up having that relationship with the terminally ill. And the woman is a long-time student, about 15 or 20 years, and she's dying. And we get on the phone, and the conversation inevitably starts with what she's unable to do, and it ends with what is undiminished in her. She starts off by telling me, oh, I can't do this anymore, I can't do that, I don't have the energy, I don't have the strength, this is being taken away, that's being taken away. I said, okay, well, all of that should be taken away because it's not true. If it can be taken away, it can't be authentic. What is still remaining, what's left with you that has been undiminished with after you've given up all these, all these other things, what is undiminished and we meet? We meet. We meet in that space together. Because it's going to be taken away. Some of it you have already happened to because you've had an accident or some trauma or something. And because we have leaned so much upon what the inauthentic aspect of ourselves the part that can be taken away, and we've counted on it so much, and that has to go, that inevitably has to go. In everyone's life, it has to go at some point. That we've missed what remains regardless of the turbulence of impermanence. Because not everything changes. Only what is false changes. And the final R, my favorite. Relax, release, relinquish, and rejoin. Rejoin. Reconnect with your hearts. That's the intention of metta, is to start that process of rejoining through, through our opinions. Once our opinions can't, no longer obscure the natural rejoining to other hearts, to the friend, to the enemy, to the neutral, all of that. Rejoining with ourself, regardless of the knee-jerk response to the emotion the emotion that says disconnect, we rejoin. We rejoin. And the effort, the inverted effort, the effort that would have taken us far away from ever rejoining and much more distant to ourselves, now claims reference to reconnect, to reconnect, to come back together, to rejoin. But there needs to be readiness for this. One student of mine, when I had mentioned to him about reconnecting and rejoining, he said to me, and this is a quote, what about all the work I've done to be self-empowered? Are you suggesting I let people use me again? You see? There's a maturity aspect of this which is character development, which is responsibility and accountability and all of those things, which if we've done this right has marched right along with us as we have met and aligned ourselves with the teachings of the Buddha. Not the psychological messages of our culture, but the 2,500-year-old message of a pointing that is as correct then, today, as it was then. But it requires a spiritual and psychological readiness to be able to rejoin because you have to admit and be able to listen across the barrier of disconnection. You want to stop your anger like that When you're angry at another person, here's how to do it. Now whether you can see the maturity level that each of us have by our willingness to do this thing, but it's a sure-fired way of dropping your anger completely. All you have to do is to listen truly to the other side, to the other side of the argument. Genuinely. Because you cannot listen and be angry at the same time. Because to listen, you have to rejoin. And when you rejoin, you can't be distant and righteous. Now watch how righteousness governs our listening. But that's the way to do it. And so this is a call to come back together. This is a call of the wild. When late at night here, you can hear the howling of the coyotes. And something in you resonates deeply with the call of that ancient sound. So too in each one of us Is the ancient certainty of our interconnection. And sometimes you can just feel it as the wonder. But the heart is there. Follow it. Line it up. Line your practice up now. We're too old to delay. Let's line it up. What is your intentionality? Is it towards wise effort or righteous effort? Let's line it up. Let's not work against the direction that we intend to go. Thank you. Can we sit for a moment or two? Relax, release, relinquish, and rejoin. Where is there a burden in those four words? Where is there a work ethic? So There's a walking period until 9 until 9